increase your common sense. And that's, you know, basically the same thing as empathy, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Common sense is putting yourself in a common person's shoes and trying to look at things the way they look at it. When you can do that effectively and have knowledge about something in particular, combine that knowledge with, with your ability to get outside your head, you'll find an idea. The following is a conversation with Brandon Steiner. Brandon started Steiner Sports in 1987 in a one-room office and with only $4,000 and a Mac computer. And through hard work and perseverance has turned Steiner Sports into one of the most successful sports memorabilia companies in the country with over $35 million in annual sales. He's always had a fearless mindset and has used this mindset to secure partnerships with some of the most elite names in sports, including... Derek Jeter, Eli Manning, Mark Messier, and Carmelo Anthony, to name a few. Oh, and he's also the inventor of the Everything Bagel. Here's his story. Brandon, let me just say, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here today. Uh, you're a New York sports memorabilia legend and have a lot of fun stuff to get into, my man. How's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I know that Nobody does more research and nobody looks into each guest better than you. So it, it kind of intrigued me to have this conversation. So let's roll. And I'm hoping more importantly that we can teach and share something valuable for the people listening. That's the goal. Yeah, we're we're going to get into a ton of that. And I appreciate the remarks there. But I got to start out with the hottest take. You ready for this? Of course. So on Gary Vee's podcast, you claim to have invented in 1974, the everything bagel. I mean, how did that come to be? Boy, you really got, you, you dug into it quick, pretty quick. It's unbelievable what Gary Vee has created. That guy, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be going back on his pod right after the new year. Uh, I have to probably do some explaining, but you know, the everything bagel came about and it's a little bit of a story, so I, I'll tell it. I, what happened was I was trying to open up as many uh, newspaper accounts as I could. I was living the daily news. You know, I was like 13 years old, 14 years old. And to be honest with you, I was not having a whole lot of luck. And my mother said, look, you got to stop selling. Try to figure out what you could do to serve and solve. And I decided to start delivering milk and bagels along with the newspaper to get the paper out thing cooking. So I was in that bagel store. Now, back in 74, not like now, there were not a lot of bagel stores. So... These bagel stores, like a bagel factory, they were delivering bagels all over the all over Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went in there one morning, the guy says, "I gotta tell you, you're every morning you're a hardworking kid. Would you like to learn how to make bagels and bake them?" I said, "Yeah, it'd be great." He says, "We we start at four in the morning, and then you can deliver your newspapers at seven thirty. You can do both and make some extra money." So delusionally, I said, "Yes, imagine you know I'm, I'm like fourteen years old. I'm I'm waking up at four in the morning." But learning how to bake them and make them, they were handmade. They're probably some of the best bagels you ever want to taste. And sure enough, this is what's so outrageous, is sure enough, I'm falling asleep in school. So, <laughs> you know, it makes sense, right? So, so, you know, no problem. Um, I go in, I tell, I tell the guy, look, I got his name is Lou. I got to quit. I, I can't do this. And... He goes, no, 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 don't quit. My night baker just quit, and I'd like you to take that on, and I'm going to give you a raise to $1.50 an hour. So I said, great, and you know, I, I love it. I don't want to wake up and deliver newspapers anymore anyway. I'm retiring from that business, and I'm going to get into bagel baking. So I take the night job over, and I remember in the morning I'm baking thousands of bagels. I mean, it's 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 I'm, I'm cranking it out. You know what I mean? It's just, just thousands and at night, it's really slow. A few people come in, you bake a few dozen here or there, and my OCD is kicking in. So I'm trying every kind of seasoning. I'm playing around with everything, a mixture of seasonings and a mixture of everything. And sure enough, at one point in the night, I've got all these seasonings. Uh, I got all these seasonings, you know, on the on the board, and I just throw everything on the bagel. <laughs> and then boom, there we were with the everything bagel. So, um. It just came from boredom. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was always an entrepreneur. I, I mean, it wasn't like I was one of these kids. I was trying everything. I tried everything to sell the newspaper. Matter of fact, I went home with that. I said, Mom, I got this idea. I'm going to cut a, a hole in the side of a van. And what I want to do is I'm going to go around the neighborhood and deliver bagels, cream cheese, locks. And then on the top, I'm going to put a huge bagel on the van. And people won't have to go get their bagels on the weekends. I'll deliver them. 
Hmm. My mother said, that's a great idea. You're 14 years old, 15 years old. Like, you don't drive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, you know, I was always just thinking about the what else. My big thing is, like, what else times what's next gets you the first to market. And I was always trying to think also, you know, it's really important in entrepreneurism is, is really trying to get outside your head and trying to think about how other people are thinking. You know, I always tell people, you want to increase your entrepreneurism and increase that attitude, increase your common sense. And that's, you know, basically the same thing as empathy, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Common sense is putting yourself in a common person's shoes and trying to look at things the way they look at it. When you can do that effectively and have knowledge about something in particular, combine that knowledge with, with your ability to get outside your head, you'll find an idea uh, about how you're going about something that's a lot more accurate and better than the way you were doing it. And that's how you get to something that's brand new. Most importantly, we all know entrepreneurism is about solving a problem, helping people do something bigger, better, different. And that's how you get in the mindset. I was into yep. it at that age. Yep, for sure. Can definitely resonate on there. I mean, one, you know, it's awesome that you created an American staple. I think a lot of people would put you up there with some historical figures. You know, we have Moses, Jesus, and then the inventor of the everything bagel. So here and here in good company. I, I like the thing, you know, I've invented, you know, listen, the goal is you don't want to be an inventor. That's hmm. another thing. Like, I don't have anything to show for that invention. You know what I mean? I mean, I came up with a cool idea. It was a delicious bagel, but I don't make any money off that. Most inventors don't make the big money. It's the improvers. You want to be an improver, not an inventor. So that, and that's, again, back to entrepreneurism. It's like, how do you take something that's really good and make it better? Most people get to something when they create it and they do something really good and they stop because they have some success. And somebody comes swooping in and they get it better and they make all the money. Like whoever invented M&Ms, it was plain and peanut for my entire childhood. Probably mm -hmm. up until like 15 years ago, you can only get a plain and a peanut in a small little package. Now there's M&M stores, M&M ice cream, and there's like 100 different flavors, all different sizes, pieces, pie crusts. I mean, you name it. So, and, you know, it sounds simple, but whatever it is you're doing, no matter how simple it is, there's probably something more there. And the better and the bigger the idea you're sitting with gives me even more of the, 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 the strength and the honest tr truth about the fact that there's something else to be done, no matter what the business you're in. If I yep, get on a little sure. bit of a roll, I can tell you another. I'll tell you another story to illustrate it. Keep, keep going, keep going, my man. Do you know who Jack Taylor is? I'm just asking. Jack Taylor. I, I've heard of a Lawrence Taylor, but I'm guessing they're not familiar. They're not a. No, they're not familiar. Though you know, Lawrence Taylor is one of my first clients, and I love Lawrence. And he was an innovator and one of the greatest defensive players ever. Jack Taylor was a Navy on the boat called Enterprise, and that's what he ended up naming his company, the Enterprise. Um, Jack Taylor got out of the Navy and went to work for a Cadillac dealership. He noticed that there was a bunch of cars that were breaking down, needed service, got into an accident. He needed those people needed a car to replace the car that was in the shop. Went to the Cadillac dealership, asked him if it was okay if he got a few cars, and then rented them out to people. He said, okay, the four cars turned to eight, eight to 16. And here we are. Enterprise is not only the largest rental car agency in the world, it's bigger than Avis, Hertz, Budget, and whoever the number four is. That's how big it is. But here's the question I want to ask you, my friend. Do you know what percentage of cars that get rented out to go on, you know, when you go to a, a vacation or you're in the airport, you need a car for the day to rent a car here, rent a car there. What what percentage of the business do you think that is? Of the rental car business? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would guess 100, but I'm guessing there's something else. I mean, what other business lines do they do they have? Exactly. And that's how most people think. It's a rent-a-car business. You go to the airport, you're on a trip, you're on a vacation, you're in town for business, you rent the car for a few days. Jack Taylor didn't see it that way. What Jack Taylor developed, it's only 15% of the business that he does. And he's the largest, oh. the largest, bigger than the top next four rent-a-car agencies. That's how big he is. And he came up with an idea that he was going to be a replacement car agency. So you can rent the car from him at an airport, whatever. But if you go to a collision shop, insurance company, you see oh. enterprise. He saw the business differently, even though it's a simple business. You have a rental car agency. How complicated is it? You go to the county, you rent out a car, you bring it back, you check out the gas, you rent it out to the next guy. He didn't see it that way. And what I, what I urge people that are listening to this is that I guarantee you, whatever business you're in, there's definitely another way of looking at it if you get your head on a swivel. 
Jack Taylor wasn't that smart a guy. He just decided he was going to look at the business differently. And most importantly, he got outside of his head and started thinking about what other people were doing as he sees these people going into the service department, getting their car fixed and needing a loaner car for several days. So he connected with all these dealerships, all these insurance companies, all these body places and cut deals. And they made sure strategically his enterprise rental car uh, places were strategically located so they could take care of all these people that would need a replacement car. Hence, the largest car, rental car business in the world by far because he thought about it different. And I can give you 50 examples of that. So I'm hoping that people that are listening are thinking, you know, maybe maybe you're not as much of an expert or you're not really thinking as clearly as wide as you could be about the business you're in. Got it. I think I love that approach in the sense that he just kind of reframed it. And, you know, a lot of people run cars on vacations, but I don't know the statistics, but a lot of people need cars when they get into accidents as a replacement. So brilliant that he wasn't able to over that he didn't overthink. He just kind of reframed his mindset. So beautiful story there. Uh, on another note regarding your journey. So you grew up proudly uh, in Brooklyn. What was it like growing up uh, as a poor kid in Brooklyn? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially, you know, my mom was like, if we, if I, if I raise you in a poor neighborhood, you're going to lead the league and steal on hubcaps. And, you know, you're going to be a product of what's around you. Mm-hmm. So we're going to live in a middle-class, upper-middle-class neighborhood, which sucked because we were the poorest person in that neighborhood. But I was a product of my environment, and I saw a lot of people with a lot of money. I didn't get angry about it. I was like, those people just aren't that smart. I mean, if they did it, I could do it. And one day I will do it because I was not willing to accept where I was at. I lived in a, a very small apartment above a Glock kosher butcher mm-hmm. uh, on welfare a good amount of my childhood. And, you know, some at some point I really didn't know better, but then at some point I was like, wow, something's wrong here, and I don't think I have the necessary things that I should have, and I decided to do something about it, which, had, which brought me to working at the age of 10. I think mm-hmm. the main thing about Brooklyn was is that you really get a full education about one of the most important ingredients in business. And a lot of people think it's about liking people, loving your customers, and it's, those are important things, but understanding your customers, how to deal with them, especially if you have a diverse group of customers of different nationalities, sexes, ages, is the most important thing. And it's something mm-hmm. my mother taught me. is like, listen, you got to learn to get along. you got to learn how other people do business and other people think. And when you do that and you learn how to do that, that's going to be a huge, huge help for you in business. And I think that's the main thing I got out of Brooklyn is that on any given neighborhood, on any given street, you could be walking into a completely like another country. And you had better be, you had better be dynamic. You had better learn to know how to get along and 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 to deal with that because that's that's life. And Mm -hmm. so you get that as a child. You know, when you get into business, you start dealing with all kinds of different elements and people and and angles. You know, it was very easy for me, and uh, it, it gave me a true advantage. Yep, I think beautifully said there, and awesome that you were able to kind of hone in on those skills that your mom was able to bestow upon you. Uh, but on another interesting note about Brooklyn, you wrote a book, one of many books actually, called You Gotta Have Balls. And there's a chapter in there called What's With the Water in Brooklyn? So, Brandon, can you tell me what is it with the water in Brooklyn? Well, I mean, I think you are a product of where you grew up and who raised you. Make no mistake that, you know, wherever you grew up, that's going to have a major impact, that neighborhood, that city, and also the people that raised you has a major impact. I think, you know, growing up in Brooklyn where, I mean, listen, Brooklyn, it had everything. And also, you know, it came at a time when, you know, there was not a lot of parental supervision. Besides my mom being in the hospital in a single parent home for over two years and early in my childhood. So we, if you ever watch Shameless, like where there's no parental supervision, that's what I was doing for two years. Like with my brothers, like we, we were living in an apartment pretty much on our own, just trying to figure it out. I'm not saying we did everything that they did in Shameless, because it's pretty outrageous, but a lot of that stuff, when you have nothing and no parental supervision, you know, kids, you know, you, you could do a lot of strange things. I think the Brooklyn thing, really, you think there's some great, 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 great people that come out of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You know, guy who founded yeah. Starbucks, Yogi Bear, I can go on and on, Spike Lee. I can just go on and on. There's so many great people. And the reason is, is because... It's a fight. It's a dog fight. You know, the water in Brooklyn basically gives you the energy to go out and become bulletproof. You can mm-hmm. deal with all the obstacles and difficulties in life very quickly in Brooklyn or you won't survive. And 
it, it's it's the fourth largest city in the country, so it's not just a borough. It, it's 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 a big undertaking, and if you take it on in a, in the appropriate way, and you got some good friends and support mechanisms, you can get a lot of life lessons out of that little that that city that you probably can't get elsewhere. Um, so I, I felt like though it was a little bit of a disadvantage, to some degree, it ended up becoming a huge advantage down the road. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm grateful for it uh, in, in many ways. I mean, I could never replicate that childhood for my kids in any, on any level, nor would they be interested in it. But I'm glad I went through it. You know, now I look at it. I mean, first of all, I've done really well. I, I've had a lot of success. I'm very grateful for that. But I mm-hmm. think it, the gratitude comes from having a phase in my life where I had so little. And so I, I still walk around my house, open up the refrigerator, like, wow, I can't believe how much I got here. And I think that if you really want to be happy, I mean, it's just my take on it, but, you know, happiness resides on the cross section of growth and gratitude. If you don't have a high level of gratitude, which if you grew up and you had a lot and then now you still have a lot, can you really be truly grateful? You can, but it's a little more difficult. And I think that people don't understand that regardless of the job you have, if you're not growing, you're going to be somewhat miserable. You've got to have a rate of growth. And uh, if you're not really growing, you're not really doing better than you were yesterday, I mean, you're probably going to be a little unhappy. And I think that's a big part of leadership today. And, and it's a difficult problem for people that's not going into offices as often. For leaders to see that an employee may be bored or they're ready for the next challenge, that's why getting back in the office is probably really important because you, you need your people that work for you, no matter how good employees they are and how well your company is doing. You need to keep your people happy. And there's only one way to make them happy, not by giving them a raise, but by giving them growth, challenge, and appreciation and gratitude. I think beautifully said there. I'm killing you with that rant. I'm sorry. I I get on these rants, but I'm so passionate about these concepts, and it's kind of what I'm living by these days. So. Brandon, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with ranting on podcasts. We're here to speak our minds. We're not in that. We're not here with the corporate shackles. We're here to just, right, you know, cool. bestow some lessons, but beautifully said. So it Thank sounds you. like Brooklyn Water really had that, uh, taught people that grit and people had to fight. So that's why all these big people came out of Brooklyn. So awesome on that. You know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, you used to, prior to inventing the everything bagel, you were, took on a paper out of the neighborhood to try to make some extra money. And you said in a TEDx talk at uh, your alma mater, Syracuse, that you had some trouble signing some clients for your paper out. But then the big switch in your mind went from instead of selling, you started serving. How did you make that switch? And kind of why do you think that was so impactful? I don't think it was impactful. I think it was everything. Mm-hmm. If you're not serving and solving, you're, you're, I don't know what you're doing, um, you know, at some level. That's why we're here. But it was my mom, you know, it was like, you know, what do I know? I mean, I'm just trying to make some money. Mm -hmm. And my mother's like, stop selling. Be a solution-based business person. Be a problem solver. Go into a situation, find a problem and solve it. Nobody's going to get rid of you. I found that old woman that wanted the paper. I couldn't find anybody to buy the paper, by the way. Finally, I found this old woman. I went back to her apartment twice. And at 11 o'clock at night, I talked to her in the game of the paper because I said, ma'am, I said, I told you, son, I don't want to get the newspaper. I said, ma'am. It's the same price for me as is the corner store, eight cents. And I'm going to bring you milk and bagels twice a week. And if it's a torrential downpour, snowstorm, I mean, just bad weather, heat wave, a woman such as yourself shouldn't be out. If you need something else, I'm happy to get it. You would do that for me? That's how I was concerned. What's amazing about that story is, is that two things. One, I've thought about how it would be like to be a 75, 80-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. You know, the question you have to ask yourself is, can you put yourself in a customer's shoes? Not think about what you're trying to do, what you're trying to sell, but what a customer's needs and what's going on, what problems they're facing. And then I was able to come up with a value proposition. So, you know, I offered them something that was more than what, you know, value. This is what nothing people don't talk. Value is something you can do for someone that they can't do for themselves. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a as a twelve year old, like I, I got I was able to get out of my head, because I know I was trying to get as many accounts opened up and get it in an old woman's head, and understand what it's like to be her because the weather's really bad. What's she gonna do? And then you know I was able to come up with a, an idea that you know produced value, and I tell people that are listening like whatever job you're in, 
I, I, I can't tell you anything and everything other than one thing. One thing is like, earn your keep. Earn your keep. Wake up every day and figure out how you can add value to your relationships, add value to your job, and you'll never lose a wife, you'll never lose a friend, you won't lose a job because you're earning your keep. Nobody wants to get rid of somebody that's adding value every day. The reason why people get fired or people get divorced, and there are a bunch, but this is one of the main ones, is that they're not adding any value. They're not earning their keep. They think that they're entitled to this job. They think they're entitled. Anytime you wake up in the morning and don't appreciate the fact that there's a woman or a husband, a man that actually made a commitment to you, wants to be involved with you on a day-to-day basis, you got to be grateful for that. You need to earn your keep so you can keep that person lying down in bed next to you. I never take my wife one day for granted. Mm-hmm. And I try everything I could do, which is not easy. I'm not saying it, but I try to keep. And it's the same thing in a job, regardless of how much value you thought you brought or how smart you think you are, earn your keep. Bring value into the workplace every day. And don't take the job you have for granted. If you're unhappy with the job, you're not means you're probably not growing or you're not learning, mm-hmm. then leave. But till you leave, Earn your keep and bring value. So they cry when you leave. I like how you put that. Earn your keep, add value, make sure you're so good that they cry when they leave. I think that's a, a beautiful note on that. And in addition to that, do you think these days a lot of people have that sense of entitlement uh, because they almost want to see results right away? They focus more on selling because they think if they sell, they'll make a lot of money. And you know, these days, a lot of people just want instant gratification as opposed to the real way to gain happiness. And I'm not saying that everything in life is perfect, but realistically, what you do is you kind of think, you know, five, 10 years ahead, something like that, and think about the value. And if you can do that, then everything else will come in. But why do you think people have trouble thinking long term? Well, I think there's three reasons why. I mean, it's it's not a problem that just exists now. It's always existed. One is um, people aren't confident. They don't have faith. I think people don't realize that faith is a huge part of being successful. You know, faith is about believing in something you can't see. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have faith, you don't believe that there's, there's a higher power or divine intervention, that when you do good and work hard, that'll take you somewhere. That's a big missing ingredient, kind of like the yeast in the cake. It's <laughs> tough, you know. And then, and then the second thing is they don't think they're worthy of it. You know, they don't mm-hmm. think they're deserving of the success that they're thinking about having. you got to know that you're worthy of it. If not you, then who? And then the third thing is, you know, you have to have a strategy. You know, you got to have the, the preparation and strategy that believes that if you do this and you do that, that things are going to work out. I think the middle one is the real biggie. Like, they don't think it's going to work out for them. You mm-hmm. come up with a story, you know, is this never going to work? Then they're never going to want to buy it. They're never going to hire me. She's never going to want to date me. Mm-hmm. That beautiful girl, she's never going to want to go out with old me. I mean, we come up, we're... we're you got to remember, we have, uh, I think it's 60,000 thoughts in a day. I think I yep. think that, you know, the instant gratification is understandable. People have lost a lot of faith, and they've seen a lot of their parents, and people get fired, companies, the transition of these new companies coming in, old companies going out. You know, why should they take a risk and work 20, 30 years for a company when eventually they're just going to go out of business and they'll throw, their, you know, throw me out in the street? Um you know, there, there's definitely a little bit of a lack of faith with some of our younger generation. But mm-hmm. also, one of the things I see on a positive note is I see a younger generation that is highly entrepreneurial, as much as I've ever seen in my life. They understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur, and I'm seeing more teenagers. You know, I was like a weird kid. I you think know, we're all a little people didn't know what to do with me, but I'm seeing like 13, 14-year-olds hustling, sneakers, trading cards. You know, they're, they're, they're making money. Their parents are supporting them. And I love these side hustles. I, I think it's amazing. And I think it should be, I look at that more as the positive. Although I would love these kids to play a little more of the long game and go to college. And But listen, it's a different environment. But I like the fact that they're taking action and they're doing something. Yeah, for sure. We love to see. I think you definitely learn much more by taking action and kind of doing something as opposed to just uh you know, sitting around and trying to, to learn it. Yeah, I would say, you know, take action over anxiety. Seeing a lot of kids with mental health issues. And and I think, you know, get your kids busy. You For know, sure. Some correction, let them, you know, let them try some things. Applaud them when they fail. You know, get, get behind them when they're struggling. It's all part of the deal. I think there's a lot of pressure 
maybe maybe I was a little this way myself, but too much pressure on the winning, and more it should be more just more pressure to try and more pressure on process. Yep, for sure. I think uh, people underestimate that it's a blessing to be busy. So I definitely uh, look at life that way and hope that's something we can bestow. But another quick note regarding your childhood. You know, I know you love the Yankees and been fortunate enough to do a lot of work with them. Uh, but when you were young, you used to scrape together a lot of money so you could go catch the games. And you have a funny Thurman Munson story. Can you just touch upon that? Well, you know, listen, I, I did like my Yankees, and I went to a lot of games. I was fortunate enough. Those days you got on the train with your friends, you went to the game, even though you were 10, 11 years old. But I talked my mother into going up to Fenway Park uh, and to go watch the Yankees play. So we got there a day early, and I just begged and bugged my mother to go to the game the night before. We only had tickets for the one game. And finally, she said, go. I can't take you anymore. Go. So I went to the game literally by myself. We were staying at the Sheridan Hotel. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I get there. It was a very quiet, timid kind of crowd. I was just yelling. Got there on the crack of the gates opening. And I was just yelling at Thurman Munson to try to get his attention. Frankly, I was just so I, I was just so excited to sit in such good seats because I was able to scalp a seat outside. And Thurman mm-hmm. did not even give me a crack of even a look. Nothing. <laughs> it didn't even look over to me. Nothing. Every time he got up at bat, I was a big Thurman Munson fan. So, you know, it was a good game. I think we won that game. It was against the Oakland A's. And I go back in a hotel, and I walk in the elevator, and, and in walks the, the, this big arm holds the door open. It was Thurman Munson. <laughs> and and uh, he gets to my face and goes, what do you want? And I was just like, oh, my God, I didn't know what to say. And then you know, he signed my 1975 yearbook. And uh, that was my interaction with Thurman. And, and he was a very intense character, as I find out from a lot of his teammates I've become friendly with. And that's how he operated, man. When he was at work, there was no goofing around. He was locked in. He was as serious a, a captain as you could be. Mm-hmm. That was my brush with uh, the greatness of Thurman Munson. That's awesome. Do you still have that autographed uh, notebook today? I don't. This is another story in itself. Not by my own choice, <laughs> when I started my new company, Collectible Exchange, mm-hmm. I really, uh, and this is probably one item I kind of regret selling, but I just feel like I needed to cleanse myself. You know, I come up with so many ideas at Steiner, and I just felt like I needed a clean slate. Mm-hmm. And all that stuff I had collected, and I mean everything, there were thousands of items, frankly, I needed to remove. Mm-hmm. And believe me, the new business I started, Collectible Sheet, I've seen everything I've ever built, dreamt up, collected. I see it every day because people bring it to me. You know, I collected, I probably put out over 35, 40 million collectibles out there over my time mm-hmm. in starting Steiner. So I just, in order to do the next thing, I needed to get all that stuff out of my way. And it meant getting it out of my house and getting it out of my sports room so I could now move on to the next uh, critical, you know, creativity part that I wanted to go to. I didn't mm-hmm. want to sit in that room and think about all the stuff I did and all the stuff I had created. I didn't want to be – that's not where I wanted my head to be. And that's just me. Mm-hmm. I'll probably regret it one day maybe or maybe not. But I know what I did. I know who I am. Like I, I felt like I just needed that out of my face so I can – Get to a blank Focus. space. I always, I always tell people like, I wait, you know, to go to work every day. I wake up broke, mm-hmm. and now my walls in my sports room are blank. That's what I wanted. I want to refill them up with new ideas, new thoughts. Mm-hmm. I go to work every day, and now, oh, I made a lot of money. This dad, I'm like, I'm broke. Go back to my mm-hmm. childhood mindset, and um, it, it keeps me motivated, inspired. I know that I'm not really broke. I'm not mm-hmm. an idiot. I mean, I, I don't play that out all the way because I know in my soul that I've done well and I have a lot of good things to be grateful for, family, money. But so I don't, you know, I don't feel like the same way I did feel when I was a kid, which was really, really broke. But, but I, I, I do train my mindset to be broke because when you're broke, uh, you tend to be more highly motivated. There's more urgency. And that's the part mm-hmm. of my game that I do want to continue to have. I don't want to rest on my laurels. And be a fat cat, or mm-hmm. you know what I did twenty years ago. I want to, which yeah, you know, I'm doing a little bit of that in this pod. But generally speaking, I want to go out and talk about what I'm doing now, and think about what I want to do going forward. Yep, I think it's beautiful to kind of train your mindset to kind of, even though you know physically you aren't, but to mentally tell yourself you're broke every day because then hungry dogs run faster. Sorry, I'm stealing that phrase from my hometown, uh, Philadelphia Eagles, but 
I think uh, it's good that you mentioned that, and that's a great thing to abide by. But right before you got started into the sports business, you actually used to work in the restaurant business. So I know there's a funny story there. When you hear the words coffee and orange juice, what comes to mind? Um, well, coffee and orange juice means never ask a yes, never ask a yes or no question. You know, it's like uh, it's a really simple aspect of selling that I teach when I do mm-hmm. seminars and speaking, and that is. Stop asking yes or no questions, mainly because 50% of the answer is going to give you an answer you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. So I was walking around the coffee shop. And I was trying to get promoted because anybody who's worked in a coffee shop or in a hotel knows you got to get up at about 5 in the morning to mm-hmm. deal with those early morning corporate customers. So I was trying to get the average checkup, and I was walking around because my busboy didn't show up, and I was serving coffee, and I realized I had the other hand free. So I was like, instead of saying, would you like more coffee? I would just say, you want coffee, orange juice, coffee, orange juice. And, and, and the answer every time was yes and yes. So, you know, when you're asking a question, whether you're asking a girl out, don't ask a girl out. Do you want to go out with me? Say, would you like to go to the movies? Would you like to have lunch? You know, if you're waiting on a table, don't ask the person mm-hmm. if you want another drink. Say, would you like another drink now? Or would you like one with dinner? Um, you know, I, I, I think mm-hmm. it's just important. You know, words matter and how you position your questions. Because anyone is in selling anybody out there listening that's in selling knows great salespeople are about making and, and making and coming up with great questions. And if you come up with questions that give you a yes or yes, mm-hmm. it's certainly a big advantage in trying to get people to buy what you want them to buy. Uh, for those that don't know, there's actually a, a funny clip of you, you know, when your busboy didn't come in, you know, you didn't say coffee or no coffee or like coffee or orange juice. So either way, something was going to come through. So oh, I think an awesome story there and a great metaphor for entrepreneurship. Uh, but onward, after that, I know you kind of worked at other restaurants and were able to meet a lot of athletes. And then in 1987, you made the bold move with a one-room office, only 4K to your name, and a computer. You signer sports. What was the vision behind that when you started it? Not much. I mean, um, you know, it was like, <laughs> I, think I, I think I realized I love I how had, I, had... Enough, I love how you say I love how you say not much, and then it's, it's become what it is today. So that's hilarious. Well, yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I just want to be honest about it. It's, you know, I didn't have some grand plan. As a matter of fact, the only plan I had was that I felt like I had run my course in the restaurant business, had a great career, but I, I didn't think it was going to work out for me if I wanted to have a family and live somewhat of a somewhat. You know, the, the, the prototype of a restaurant, successful restaurant owner manager was seven days a week, seven nights a week, working every holiday. I, I just didn't feel that. But, you know, when I started Steiner, I was just I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had a feeling that maybe I could market some athletes. I was doing PR for a bunch of sports bars. I was kind of involved with creating the sports bar concept back in the mid-'80s. After leaving Hard Rock, I'd open up a bunch of sports bars. So I was doing some consulting. And to be honest with you, the first four or five years, I mean, I just tried a whole myriad of things. Uh, I tell people all the time, it's like, it's one thing to come up with a good idea, but not all of them always work. And don't be SOS. Mm -hmm. Don't be stuck on stupid. And a lot of my ideas, they sounded good when I started executing them. They weren't as good as I thought. Um, but, you know, I kept, I kept at it. I think that, you know, winners win. You know, it, you're, you're, if you're a figure-it-out person, you can, you know, you can start find your way eventually. The goal is you got to stick around long enough, be flexible enough. I always say, like, if you believe that losing and failing is part of winning, not the opposite, then you're in a business, as you start succeeding, you realize you're going to have some losing, a couple of losing hands. You play a poker game. You're not going to win every hand. You mm-hmm. just want to win a few more hands than you lose. And that's why I looked at the business. And then, you know, at some point, my wife was like, you know, I think maybe you should get a job mm-hmm. because it was, you know, it was kind of lagging. It was a it's little tough. unclear whether it was going to work or not. So sometimes that little definitely, was, you know, it was a little bit of a moment of time. I said, well, I got to either try to figure this out or I may have to do that. And obviously, I didn't want to go do that. So I, you know, started getting deep into the figuring out phase, um, which, you know, it paid off. I mean, I tried some new things and, and it paid off. I got a little lucky, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But I was never a big sit down and forecast long range. I'm, I'm definitely a sampler now. Like, I, I feel like I would say dream big, sample small, fail quick. So, like, I, that's kind of more my mantra now. Like, I dream big. But I'm not jumping into the deep end of the pool before I sample and t- tip my foot in the water first. And now if something really sucks, I'm, I'm going to walk. I'm okay. I, I, bad idea. I tried it. I'm moving on. Um, sometimes I see people that are being resilient. I'm like, you're at this thing for like seven years. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to be working. Like maybe you want to try something else. <laughs> but uh, I'm 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 a dream big guy. I'm a big dreamer, and uh, I don't mind sampling. I don't I mean, have to go hit the big home run right out of the gate, and uh, I'll I'll work at it. And when I feel like that sampling has taken its course, and either decide to go forward or quit. I mean, look, it's it's worked out, thankfully, in the long run in a big way. I mean, you've signed partnerships with athletes such as Derek Jeter, Eli Manning, Mark Messier, and Carmelo, just to name a few. You know, I know a lot of people probably try to pursue those high-level individuals really rigorously, but is there a reason why they chose you as opposed to kind of going with someone else and why they stay with you? I mean, it's a good question, and it's definitely something I constantly think about because I obviously want to replicate it, but... It goes back to what I was saying before is like, you know, every time you meet a situation or meet an opportunity or a person that you think, you know, presents something really good for yourself, rather than thinking about what you can get, think about the value you can provide and what you can give, not what you can get. Mm-hmm. So when I met any of those players that, and they're all big names, the first thing I thought of was like, what could I do for them that mm-hmm. maybe they can't do for themselves? What help could I give them? And then, you know, listen, I've had a lot of players that I've helped and not much has come from it. And I've been lucky with some players where I've reached out and tried to do everything I can to help them, and it has worked out. So I think it's a value prop. It's a prop that I learned when I was living in the newspapers. It's the prop I use today. It's like I lead with what can some I do for form you? of generosity, and I lead mm-hmm. with some form of what can I do for you. And I don't worry as much about what you could do for me. I want to get the relationship started. My best way to get it started is to try to find a value proposition that brings me some value to you that maybe you want to kind of still stay connected with me. It's you know, a I simple think, concept, but it is what it is. You know, I think a lot of people think of it in the opposite way. Is they're like, oh, I want to be associated with this super high-profile person, when in reality, if you want to be associated with people who are successful or have accomplished a lot, you have to think about what you can do for them first. And that's really the key that you got to go. And it's awesome that you've been able to maintain that. Uh, but candidly, you know, we all have, hard lessons to learn. And I know despite a lot of your success, you learned something in the David Wells situation. Can you touch upon that? Oh, well, we just talking about that. I was just going back and forth with David on text because I posted something on my Facebook because, mm-hmm. you know, one of my valuable lessons is that David Wells had pitched a perfect game and I put all my money into doing a private signing with all the Yankees mm-hmm. and selling this big private, this, this really cool team piece with all the Yankees on it. Only problem is I didn't have David Wells. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're negotiating, and I thought what he was worth was X. He thought he was worth Y. And I just refused because of my ego and my stupidity to give him the extra five bucks. And uh, apparently the guys in the, in the in the locker room were ribbing him about it. What's the Brandon giving you? Uh, it's giving me more. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then David signed with another company, and it became really difficult. Almost put me out of business. But what I learned is that not, don't worry about what you're paying someone. If somebody's asking you for X amount of money, don't worry about what they're asking. Just worry about whether that dollar amount you can make money on and can it work. And you, I think a lot of times we judge about what somebody's yeah. getting paid, not about what work, what value they're providing and the money that gets made. You know, oh, this guy gets $20 million a year. But, yeah, how many people are in the stadium? How many sponsors? Mm-hmm. I think about all the things that player brings. Don't worry about what he's making. Worry about the value he provides and whether you can make money on it. And that was a valuable lesson in it. Um, that I learned, you know, it was a painful one because David didn't make it easy for me. And, you know, um, and it's a good, valuable lesson that, that don't worry about what you're paying somebody. Worry about what money and whether that, that what they're asking for can work. Do you think looking back, your ego was kind of overpowering your intuition back then? I think, I think that my ego got the better of me. And at that time, you know, I was dictating a lot of what players were getting paid because I was the first to market with so many players and their autographs. And I was an idiot, you know, and, and I can't, and you know, someday I can't afford to be stupid like that again. So I'm glad I learned that lesson early on and it almost cost me my business. Mm-hmm. That's what's crazy is like over $5 per autograph guy pitched one of the great games of all time. And I'm, I'm stuck with this guy on an ego trip, which ended up costing me and almost cost me my business, which mm-hmm. boy, that would have been, that would have not been good. Thank God my wife and I, we went to the bank. We had to go borrow some money because we really were stuck taking a second mortgage on our house. And fortunately, you know, we figured out a way to get the autographs from David uh, and and make that project work or we probably wouldn't have been able to continue. 
look, thankfully it worked out in the end, but I think it's always a good to look at those stories as uh, lessons learned as opposed to, you know, just yeah. ruminating on them. So awesome that you were able to kind of get that sorted out and you and David are still able to talk. Uh, but another example of kind of your creativity, uh, you ended up buying the exclusive rights to the old Yankee Stadium. So I think the one where its last season was 2008. And Mariano Rivera famously said that no one had the idea to sell the dirt except you. I mean, how did you think, how did you think of that? And why did you think it would have such good margins? Margins were obvious. By the way, underneath that dirt, there's more dirt, which is the yep. I mean, I was just more desperate at the time. I mean, I was trying to figure out how to make the number, not going to lie. Um, I got really creative after the fact, but initially it was a money grab. I was like, wow, let's see if we can go create some products, put dirt on them. Then eventually I started really getting into it and started creating really cool products. But, you know, sometimes things are just a money grab. You know, you're desperate, your back's against the wall. We had a big number to hit on that stadium that we bought. Um, the economy went a little south. If you remember right around then, there was this big real estate bust. Mm -hmm. and things were really, really not going well. Uh, so and I tell people all the time, sometimes it's okay just to do the money grab. You don't have to have some righteous, you know, uh, methodology behind doing something sometimes it's like i did it because we needed to make money and it was an easy get when i asked the yankees to give me some dirt <laughs> i just remember asking Derek to kick the dirt around i wanted to take a photo of him kicking the dirt around because i wanted to sell some special dirt just at the shortstop area i wish i had a picture of that look <laughs> yeah no that's funny i mean look it's it's all the, the creative decisions we make but it's awesome you're able to do that and do that throughout your career uh, on another note, something interesting that uh, Mark Cuban said recently that you had a chance to be a fellow speaker with him. He said that people often think success is the destination. So the way I interpret that is people think of, you know, nice palm trees, a big house on the beach. Uh, but what Mark said is success is waking up and having a great day. Why do you think people get really fixated on the destination when it's really about the journey? Because that's what they see on TV and then they, they, that's what they read in a, in a book or a movie. But, you know, the reality is as you become successful, you can always go to the Palm Beach and hang out on the beach. Um, you know, Mark talks about, you know, finding what you love to do is, you know, never having to work another day the rest of your life. I, I, sometimes success is just getting out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends. I mean, everybody has a different level of success. But I think, you know, when you try to be extraordinary and really try to be really good at something, the last thing you want to do is do that so you don't have to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom Brady would say, I'm really going to try to win these Super Bowls be the quarterback here and one day so I can make a lot of money and not do it anymore. And I think that's one of the hardships is that when you're really good at something, you work really hard to be good at it. It is hard to walk away from it. It's mm -hmm. hard to give it up because you love it. You, you're used to working really hard at it and it gets kind of ingrained in your soul about this process and this work that you do. But I think the key is you try to balance it and not, not become, you know, not become the person based on who you are, you know, what you do. You don't want to be the person who you are based on what you do. You got to keep a little balance. And sometimes when you become really good at something, that's what happens. You know, Tom Brady is a person, you know, he's got a normal life just like you and I, but you look at him as this great quarterback, not as a, another, just another good person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, you try to find that balance and act with that. But listen, for some people, and it's okay if they want to they define success as making a lot of money so they could be on a beach and chill out the rest of their lives. I have no problem with it. Mm -hmm. That may be, that may work for some people. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, but if you do find something you love doing and you have and you get you have to be really good at it, it's fun going at it as long as you can too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I like the way you frame that. But one of the things that you just said is that it's really important, especially maybe how you start your day and how you start your day. And you also mentioned in an interview that the first 90 seconds of a day are critical. So how do you spend those 90 seconds getting ready? Lately, I'm, lately, I'm just off my back, on my shoulder. But... Um, but those, you know, for many of the years, I try to focus on what's important mm -hmm. and who's important. I think you got to do what's important for who's important every day. Um, and I always, you know, come up with my MVP list, my most valuable priorities, you know, what's important and, uh, knowing what your family is doing, try to have an idea of what your most important employees or customers are doing. Mm -hmm. Cause if you don't do it at the beginning of the day, you end up at the end of the day and you go, oh man, I forgot about this. I forgot about that. I forgot to call this one. I forgot to call that one. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's really important to not only come up with a list of what's important and who's important, but also you can't have more than two or three priorities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I try to organize that right away in the morning. And then also you got to have your not to do list, things you want to really avoid and stay away from. 
because they'll suck you dry, you know, the bad customers or a friend that is nagging you that you don't want to really be their friend anymore. So if you come up with a good not-to-do list, it strengthens your to-do list. And uh, I think, you know, listen, I think a big part of being successful in your time management skills is just figuring out what your priorities are, what's important, and always remembering who's important. WMI, what's important, Mm -hmm. and who's most important. I love the way you said that, most valuable priorities. I think uh, I'll definitely add that to my vocabulary and maybe make, make one of those lists as I, as I go on to my day. I'll just I'll rename my to-do list, most valuable priorities, and we'll see if it, if it helps out there. But uh, on another note, something that I thought was really interesting is you have a quote in your office by uh, Bob Knight, God rest his soul, but it reads, when my time on earth is gone and my activities here are past, I want them to bury me upside down so the critics can kick my ass. You know, what, is that, what does that quote mean to you? I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's Bob. I mean, I love Bob and I'm blessed to have the time I've spent with him. It was great quality time. And he gave me a lot of insight and a sport that I love basketball. And also he's a brilliant guy. I mean, a brilliant person, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And obviously he's won a few games and one of the greatest college coaches of all time. You know, I, I think, you know, he probably could have said it a little differently, but the way I look at it is like, listen, it doesn't really matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what other people feel. However, it does matter what the people that you love and care about think. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's probably a little bit of a better way to say it. Like, I, I never really want to start picking fights with other people and mm-hmm. what they think. I just don't. I choose not to have to listen to it or really take it seriously. So I tell people, it's like, it matters what people think. The people that you love and that care about you. It matters what they think. Mm-hmm. You don't have to take what every person thinks and care about that. Bob was a sensitive character and he was great at what he did. And, and sometimes I think he went a little too far, mm-hmm. uh, which sometimes came back to haunt him a little bit, but as we all do sometimes, he had some good valuable lessons learned and, and you probably see him popping up on Instagram. Anybody who had the chance to interview him, he was a great coach. And the reason you know that is because you don't see a lot of players complaining about having him as a coach. Yep. For sure. Bob, uh, Bob was a cool, cool dude. And I like the way you said that in the sense that, a lot of times people go to wonder extreme or the other in the sense that they care what everyone thinks or they care what no one thinks. But in reality, like most things, it seems like it's, it's a balanced choice. So, uh, you know, I like the way you framed it in the sense that we should care about the opinions of those we hold dear to us, but all the other critics can, uh, pardon my French, can kick our, cannot kiss our ass. So I think, uh, you know, I like the way you said that. But uh, additionally, speaking of the books that you wrote, uh, another one that you wrote was called Living on Purpose. And there are a few really cool lines there. But one of them and one of the big things that you speak of is faith, fortune, and fitness. What does that mean to you? Well, when I wrote the book, it meant that those are the three things that would help me sell the most amount of books. Um, <laughs> yeah, think about it. When I went to a bookstore, people said, look, you know, if you come up with a book that can help people lose weight or can make people a lot of money or get closer to God, those are the books that sell. Mm-hmm. Initially, I kind of started with that, and then I realized, like, you know, that's that's pretty important stuff. If I could come up with, you know, some funnels that support those three angles, that would be a good book. Mm-hmm. And those are the three funnels that I was kind of concentrating on myself to be a more complete person and, and a better business person. And I always say, you know, listen, you can't make, you know, if you want to make money real quick, then, you know, get to know somebody who's really, really rich and about to die and they can leave you in their will. Yeah. If not, you know, you better play the long game and figure out how to be great at something because that's the only way you can really make a lot of money. Uh, and every now and then you see some people get lucky. If you want to lose weight, you can cut off an arm. <laughs> that, that'll drop some weight quickly. And if you want to get close to God, you know, you're probably going to have to die. So I don't think you want to do that. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, there are ways to get closer and there are ways to improve your spiritual and, and, your, and your faith. There are ways to get healthier. There are ways to constantly increase your, your value. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to attack those three buckets. Um, I, I like the book just because it was not telling people what to do, but I was kind of trying to show people what I did. Mm-hmm. To work. It's always easy to learn on someone else's time. Mm-hmm. You know, what you do is supposed to tell you what to do. Here's what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I could do that. And I think the book really outlines what I did as opposed to telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. And it was easy for people to digest. A lot of snackable a lot of snackable content in there, easy to digest, mm-hmm. not too radical, and uh, I think helpful. I get a lot of great letters from that book that you know people are very grateful. It was a good, it's a good wake up call book for somebody who's heading in their forties. 
Yep. I also like the fact that it's written in plain English. And a lot of times you have these authors, they write, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of times these authors write these long books and, you know, they're well written, but they're written in, you know, just words that are in a way that the average person couldn't really understand. And there's another book I read a while ago, uh, the book based on, or sorry, the the story behind the movie War Dogs, it's called out Once a Gunrunner about this guy, this this young Jewish kid who was a stoner out of Miami who became you know one of the biggest arms dealers in the U.S. That book was also written in plain English. So when you just write it like a normal person, I think it's a lot easier for people to understand what's going on. So appreciate it there. Uh, another, another interesting thing you spoke about that I think a lot of people get confused about is passion and purpose. So why do you think people get confused between the two and how do you define those? I wouldn't make it too complicated. I mean, passion and purpose is, is, is the dessert. You know, it's passion and purpose and dessert. If you look at uh, success as a meal, you know, first you need to come up with an understanding and agreement about what it is you want to do before you can do anything. You know, it's mm-hmm. like if you want to go on a diet and lose weight, you got to come up with an understanding and agreement about how much you're going to eat and what you're going to eat. Once mm-hmm. you come up with that understanding and agreement, then you can get into commitment to do it. And then purpose and passion fits in. I think a lot of people just keep searching for purpose and passion, but trying things and coming up with an agreement and understanding is what leads you towards towards purpose and passion. We all want to have purpose and passion. It's important. It's a nice ingredient. It's a blessing to have it. But it comes it comes after you come up with an agreement and understanding about what it is you're going to try to do, and then you get committed about doing it. Mm-hmm. Because it's tough to get it's tough to have passion about something that you're not in agreement that you have to do. Or even understand what you have to do. So one of the things I outline in the book is that, you know, come up with an agreement, take your time to make sure you understand what's what's at stake. And I think that's one of the reasons why people try things and they, oh, that didn't work. I wasn't passionate about it. Mm-hmm. They never agreed or really understood what the whole thing was about to begin with. And yeah. uh, great companies take the time to train you and to really make sure you understand what the whole deal is working for that particular company and what's needed, what's expected. And they, they push for you to get an understanding agreement before they start putting you into these, you know, critical roles. Yeah. And uh, if you're out there and you're listening, I mean, think about it. It's like, do you have a full understanding and agreement about what it is you're doing and what it, what it really takes to be great at it? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't. Yeah, for sure. I think it's good that they install them with the purpose of their job so that they could find the passion. But I like the explanation you gave there. Uh, but on a funnier note, in another book that you wrote called uh, The Business Playbook, I know I'm talking a lot about your authorship here. You actually had the chance to play uh, the great Michael Jordan basketball. And there's a quote in there. Again, pardon my French. After you scored on him, you told him to sit the fuck down and watch me play. I mean, what went through your mind as you, as you said that to the GOAT? Well, not a lot was going through my mind other than complete joy. I mean, you know, look, I worked really hard and, and delusionally thought that I could get on a basketball court and, and beat them on some level. And if I played them 100 times, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd lose 100 times. But every dog has his day. And I think if you dream big uh, and, and get kind of committed to it, at least you dream and try. Like, you'd be surprised every now and then something great happens. That was one of my favorite days. No doubt. I'm very grateful grateful that my wife sent me to that fantasy camp. And Mm -hmm. I think when I look back on it, it was pretty delusional thinking. But, you know, I tried it and it worked out for me. And I loved There's no other way to talk to Michael Jordan other than trash talk him and give him shit. So I don't regret it for a minute. Um, I would do it again. And when I see Michael every now and then at an event, he will sprint over no matter where he is in the room and tell the people I'm with that I'm a liar. Mm-hmm. And that everything I'm saying is not true, which I know that it got underneath this crawl just a little bit. So I'm very grateful for that. You know, Brendan, uh, I'll ask you this. How many people outside of the NBA can honestly say they scored on Michael Jordan? I mean, come on. I think there's like one or two. You know, he had all these camps all the years. And I, I, I've run into like maybe another camper that in a, in a three-point game beat him. But not many people. He was not a guy, no matter how much you paid to go to the camp, he wasn't a guy that let you win. Which is that's the irony of it all. He never felt sorry for you. You know, you're a little older. I'll give you a little. No, he took care of last. He beat the hell out of you and send you off here in your way. He just didn't see me coming, and I got a little hot that day. And and I don't know. A lot of things went right. And um, I gotta say, I will tell that story to the day I die. But <laughs> it just puts a smile on my face. But listen, Michael Jordan, as delusional as was, he didn't think I could even be on the same court as as him. It's crazy, but. 
I had a moment of time where I snuck in at seven o'clock in the gym and played in the game against him and lit him up like a Christmas tree. And I don't regret it. And when I see him, I talk all the trash I possibly can. <laughs> I don't care. And, and then it was fun. It was just fun and just been lucky, lucky to have that opportunity. I mean, it's a beautiful memory, man. And I think, look, if I ever got fortunate enough or if anyone ever did, they would do the same thing. So you talk your piece till the day you got to, my man. Uh, on another note, from everything you've done in kind of sports memorabilia, I feel like I have to ask this question, but what's the most expensive piece of memorabilia you've ever sold? It was John Washington's perfect game uniform. So for about 800000 one of the greatest game ever pitched, one of the greatest game ever played, Game 7, World Series. Uh, to be with Don and his wife and, and to, you know, I know that money was going to their grandchildren. It was important to them mm. and just to go through that whole process to sell it and at least get a really solid amount of money for mm -hmm. it for them at that time was great. And uh, I'm pretty sure that was the most expensive item we, that we, I've sold. 800K for a piece of history. That's, that's beautiful there. Uh, you know, you've gotten a chance to meet, you know, a lot of really awesome you know, celebrities and athletes and whatnot. So I don't know if this is a great question, but is there anyone you haven't met that you'd like to take to dinner? Or do you have a dream dinner guest? Well, I mean, I'd like to see, I'd like to, I don't want to meet Oprah, but I'd like to have dinner with her. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. One of the great businesswomen of our time and extremely influential. Mm -hmm. I'd probably like to add Obama to that mm -hmm. um, just because I'd like to really understand what he was thinking. I mean, what, what he accomplished is, is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I guess the third person is probably not somebody living, but I, I'd like to have met either Roberto Clemente or Jackie Robinson. It's beautiful. Uh, particularly, you know, what Roberto was about back in the day when, you know, he was such a, a giver and somebody that did so much community work. And then Jackie Robinson, I'd like to know how he got through the obstacles. And there were a bunch of them and fought through those and, and stayed strong. I'd like to understand what what, what the mindset was there and, and just – I'd like to take an inside view of that. He was a really great athlete besides baseball too, by the way. So it would be interesting to meet him as well. I, I think those are the three. I think those are some beautiful answers. And definitely, especially on Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, I think he'd be a really cool person to, to pick a brain. So I agree with you on there. Uh, two other quick parting notes here. Out of everything you've done or everything you continue to do in your life, what would you say brings you the most happiness? I think, you know, my family. I mean, I think that, um, I think my kids and you know, my wife, and particularly my wife, but myself and my wife have done it. Uh, you know, you try to do the best job you can in raising your kids. And mm -hmm. even though they don't do everything that necessarily the way we would like to, you know, the way they go about their business, the way they handle themselves as adults, you know, I'm very proud of that. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that I'm going to be 35 years married to mm -hmm. a very beautiful, intelligent, great woman. Um, I'm very grateful. It brings me a lot of happiness to know that, you know, that, you know, you're always worried about, you know, can you get married and stay married and, 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 and keep a, you know, a productive marriage as well as raise a good family that we could all get along and get together and, and do things, especially when you come from as dysfunctional families I did. So, you know, I'm extremely grateful and happy about that. Mm -hmm. I'd say it's probably my biggest, most happiest success that I've ever had. Um, and then, you know, now I feel like the second thing, and, and, and it's just having the freedom to, you know, after I've done a lot of stuff and I work for a big company, having the freedom to really do what I want, mm -hmm. the knowledge I have, has been, you know, quite a blessing, really. I mean, I've, I've started having fun again in business mm -hmm. and not worry about the money, but worrying about, you know, what, what I could create and what I could do. So lately it's been, it's been more fun than, than uh, it's been in a long time. And I think, I'm mad at myself because, you know, I, I did work for a while for the money. Mm -hmm. Not that I wasn't creative, not that I wasn't passionate, but now the, the less you care, when building Stein, I never cared about the money, really. Uh, I was just more interested in just doing what I was doing as great as I could do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm back to that mindset, like doing what I could do as great as I could do it. And then I, I worry about if the money comes, the money comes. And, and that's kind of sheer joy if you get in that mindset and really do it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's 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 the mindset that you, you really want to try to incorporate is do as much as you can and not let money be the driver mm -hmm. and not be pretentious, but do it to help people or do it to solve a problem or do it to have fun. Or do it for the love of the game, which you know I'm sure you've been able to do. And a lot of people say family, but I, I love the point that you made there. If you can do it for you know adding value and making people's lives better and just have fun, I think that's a beautiful note. And 
on that note, you know, you've done a lot in your career and I'm sure you're going to leave a great legacy, but Brandon, at the end of your life, on a parting note, what do you want to be remembered for? Some people remember me at all. <laughs> From all of my... So, you know, listen, I just think people think that I was a good guy, I was generous, and um, I think that's the most important thing. I made a little bit of a difference. I try to make a difference uh, with using the influence Hmm. of some of the different things I've been involved with. I've made a little difference and, and, and made people's lives a little bit better. But, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave the real true answer to that question up to people I've done business with and then family and friends that I'm fortunate enough to have. I think that's a, you know, that's a beautiful way to be remembered. And Brendan, it has been an absolute blast, my man. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope we can all aspire to leave an impact like you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And, um, by the way, you know, I am giving out my book for free. If you go to Collectible Exchange, you can get any one of my free books. You just pay for the shipping, and I'm happy to autograph them. So, And uh, I, I put out a lot of content on my social, so if you if you have a message or uh, something you want to talk about, just message me, and I'll answer that phone. So awesome, man. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Brandon Steiner. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.